Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 14. Matthew, chapter 14. Uh, we're going to read from verses 13 through 21. Matthew, chapter 13, a very familiar story, uh, account in the Gospel. Matthew, chapter 14, verse 13. <clears throat> this is what the Holy Scriptures say. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides women and children. Every one of us struggles at some point in time or another with the gloomy presence of inadequacy. We ask ourselves the question, do, do I have what it takes? Is there enough in me to meet this challenge that is ahead of me? I, I know within this, uh, my hearing here, there are people with a varying levels of confidence. Some of you barrel into position to situations uh, with nary a thought of self-doubt at all. And then others of you are just riddled with it all the time. Do I have what it takes? I'm pretty sure not, but here I go anyway. This can happen a lot. Everyone wonders if they're enough. Um, it happens in a variety of situations. Sometimes simple questions. It's game night at your house and you look at what's out on the counter to eat and you think, do I have enough salsa to go with these chips that I bought? Or... Um, you walk outside and feel the first bite of the air in the morning and you think, did I dress warmly enough? Do I have enough clothing on for, for today? Those are simple questions. There's more challenging questions like uh, the question you ask yourself when you bring that newborn baby home. It might happen instantly. It might happen uh, two or three days later. But here you are with this helpless little being that you helped create and now you have been entrusted by God with the care of this child. How are you going to feed and clothe at this child? Most especially, how are you going to get this child to go to sleep? Do you have it within you to care for that child for the next 20 years, 40 years? Or uh, at the opposite end of the spectrum, you're on the verge of retirement and you look at what's in your account and you wonder which is going to last longer, you or your money. Do I have enough here to survive? To help you think through that question more carefully, uh, Matthew recorded this event in the life of the Lord Jesus. And the main topic, the main theme of this passage is the all-surpassing sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. 
This is the only miracle besides the resurrection, and you maybe could argue the incarnation, but it's the only miracle besides the resurrection that's included in all four Gospels. There's something about this event that the disciples kept thinking about. They thought about it, and there's something significant here for us to know when it comes to following the Lord Jesus. It's an instructive place in Matthew, too. There are two banquets in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 14. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this. There's two banquets. Herod hosts one of them. Jesus hosts the other. At Herod's banquet, it's a party. It's an elite party for his birthday. And he has uh, the entertainment, uh, a dancing of a 12 or 13-year-old girl. And Herod is so impressed, he probably drunkenly promises her anything. And she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. John's dead at Herod's party. The food was probably great at that party. If you want to make a context, if you want to make context, if you need to network, that's the party you want to be at. I'm not sure I'd want to send in my RSVP for that party. Then there, though, is now Jesus' banquet. It follows a full day of healing. There's no details in the text other than it says that he healed their sick. But we've read the, the rest of Matthew. You've read the rest of Matthew. So you understand what this day was probably like. The blind coming so that Jesus might touch them and they could see. People bringing their loved ones, parents carrying their children with deformed feet that can't walk and asking Jesus to touch them and heal them. The deaf coming to Jesus and Jesus, he does it differently every time, right? Touches their ears and they can hear and, and can you imagine the joy that comes across people's faces? The, the tears and the hugs and the, the, the celebration and the gladness because they're with Jesus and he's healing them. And then the day ends with this miraculous meal that feeds a crowd of probably 24 or so thousand people. Do you remember when we used to get together in large crowds? When was the last time you were in a crowd of 24,000 people? Uh, uh, the last crowd I was in, a, the biggest crowd I think uh, that I was in most recently in 2018, I was at a conference in Louisville and there were 12,000 people in a stadium. And it took us uh, 30 minutes to get out of the stadium when the conference was over. I can only imagine how long it took to feed these 24,000 people at Jesus' banquet. Two banquets in Matthew chapter 14, I know which one I would rather be at. The main topic of this passage is the all-surpassing sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. And it's a perfect day for us to think about this because we've taken some time this morning to reflect on the loss and the grief for the past 12 months of the COVID-19 pandemic. There's a variety of attitudes and thoughts about the pandemic. Some people still live with that crippling sense of fear that, uh, uh, that all of us had back in March a year ago. Do you remember that? The thought was, anybody who got it was going to need to be in the hospital and we were all going to be on ventilators and our manufacturers were talking about how quickly they could produce thousands and thousands of ventilators because thousands of people were going to need ventilators. And we weren't sure what the death rate was of COVID-19. There was the, the previous uh, pandemic of a COVID type in uh, Asia. The death rate was about 10%. 10% of people who got it died. We had all kinds of unknowns. 
Most of the fears that we had, those sharp fears, have been unrealized. We give thanks to God. But now you have to worry about the variants, right? Now you better be afraid of the variants. There are people with uh, varying degrees of caution and varying degrees of concern about the pandemic. In the last couple of weeks, I've had a couple of people apologize to me on the phone or uh, uh, conversations. I'm so sorry that I haven't been able to come to church. I really wish I could be there, but my doctor told me that I shouldn't go yet, and I'm really sorry. And I say, oh, please, don't apologize to me. Listen to what your doctor says. Listen to what she tells you. Follow her advice. Uh, There will be a day... Sometime when we say it's time to come back, that time is not yet now. Please don't apologize to me if your doctor tells you to stay home. Some people, uh, when you think about it, have reached uh, a frustration, a, a level of frustration with the pandemic that almost verges on anger with the conviction we've all been duped. This is media hysteria. hysteria. There are publicity-hungry doctors. There's power-craving bureaucrats. They've all conspired to blow this out of proportion. And And even talking about it like this on a Sunday morning or praying the way we did, it bristles you because it's just uh, a cowering to the great deception. You're frustrated. You're frustrated over the damage that's happened to our seniors isolated in their assisted living facilities. Or you're frustrated over what's happened to our students in the school. Or frustrated over small businesses and um, what's happened in churches. Every family, isn't every family and every church has people in all of those camps when you think about the pandemic? It makes getting together for Christmas dinner kind of hard, right? Uh, Thankfully, this morning, I don't have to make a grand interpretation of the pandemic and explain it in that way. Instead, I want to invite you with me to Matthew 14 to do what the author of Hebrews says, consider Jesus. Jesus, who is the all-sufficient Savior. And I want to show you how his sufficiency shines in comparison to the questions and doubts and indifference of the disciples. Remember in this section of Matthew, opposition is rising to Jesus. It's starting to rise. uh, But Jesus, he continues to serve. He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't have bitterness. He doesn't stop serving. He doesn't stop healing. He helps those who come for him for help. He teaches. He's still involved. But the disciples are starting to stumble a little bit here in the text. Today, what I want to do is I want to increase your confidence in Christ, and I also want to help you tackle some of the struggles that you might have in trusting him. We're going to walk through the passage. We're going to walk through Matthew 14, 31 to 21, just kind of verse by verse walking through it. And I want to do it under uh, three headings. Uh, They're descriptive lines that are sometimes helpful for narrative passages. Sometimes that's the best way to walk through them. Let's start. First, I want you to see in the text the compassion of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus. Verse 13 begins, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately. Now, the what had happened is important. Um, Remember, we have just read in Matthew the death of John the Baptist. That's not what had happened. Remember, the death of John the Baptist is a flashback in Matthew chapter 14. That's not the what had happened that Jesus is withdrawing for. Jesus is withdrawing over what had happened back in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14. Look at 14, 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. 
Jesus heard about Herod's interest, and that's what's causing him to withdraw privately to a solitary place by boat. Uh, there's no specific application, I suppose, in pointing that out. I just, I just want you to, though, remember here that Jesus is on the schedule that is set and established by his Father. He's not going to be rushed. He's not going to be controlled. Jesus withdraws like this two or three times in the Gospel of Matthew. When tensions rise, he withdraws from the area he's in and goes and serves in another area. He, the, Jesus doesn't withdraw. Uh, uh, when he doesn't withdraw is when it's time to be crucified and he's so far with, from withdrawing, he rides a donkey into the center of town. He's not to be controlled. He's not to be rushed. He's following his father's schedule. And he goes to a solitary place, an isolated place. My translation says solitary. Yours might say lonely or isolated. Um, I want you to think about this like a wilderness type place. It's a wilderness. That will be important in a few minutes. So keep that in mind that Matthew's painting this picture of wilderness, Jesus in the wilderness. He uh, withdraws by boat privately, but he does not have any alone time at all. The crowd hears about where he's going and what he's doing, and they follow him. This is a little confusing to me, frankly, because Jesus is traveling by boat to a place. Uh, other uh, of the Gospels would indicate to the northeast shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's going over there. And people who have heard about it on the shore follow him on the shore. And the text indicates they beat him there. And I don't understand that really. How do they by foot beat him when he's in a boat going a, a straight line? Here's my only thought. Put 12 men, 13 men in a fishing boat and send them out in the sea and ask how long it takes them to get somewhere, right? Do you suppose they maybe paused to catch a few fish? Maybe. I don't know. Jesus gets there, and he gets out of the boat, and he sees a large crowd, and his first thought is compassion. Would that be your first thought? You're trying, you're trying to get away for a little bit privately, and you get somewhere, and you see a large crowd, and your first thought is, yippee, right? Oof. Actually, this word compassion is an important word in the Gospel of Matthew. It shows up uh, because it's so important for understanding this passage. I want to take you back to Matthew chapter 9. Flip back with me for a minute to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And, and here is another instance of the word compassion. And here's a passage where Jesus teaches his disciples how to respond to large crowds of needy people. And uh, I'm not sure they got the lesson here. Matthew 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Same, same responses in chapter 14. He sees the crowds, he has compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Here's Jesus' attitude towards needy, broken, harassed, helpless people who interrupt his day, the sick, the lost. It's good to, to think about some of those adjectives because all of us spend at least some time in that condition 
being broken and lost and feeling harassed and helpless. And in the sight of Jesus, what does he do? He steps toward them, not away from them. He doesn't sigh, he doesn't groan, he doesn't roll his eyes. He steps toward them. How does that compare to your attitude towards needy, broken people that come across your path? These interruptions, these nuisances. It's springtime, so uh, it's muddy outside, especially with melting snow. And uh, uh, let's imagine, for the sake of uh, uh, imagination here, that I have spent all morning cleaning my kitchen floor so that it shines, it's beautiful, it's clean. And then my dog uh, indicates her desire to go outside. So I let the dog out, and the dog comes back in, and as she walks across my new, beautiful floor, she leaves muddy footprints for 12 feet into my kitchen. Dumb dog. Messing up my house. It's probably okay to be frustrated with your dog that when your dog tracks mud into your house, it's, it's probably wise to teach your children not to do that in your house. But how do you respond with, when people with muddy feet trample across your nice, clean calendar? What do you think about them? How do you respond? Jesus sees these interruptions as opportunities for compassion. Oh, good. Look, there's someone who needs my help. I'm going to go help them. Now, Jesus in Matthew 9 had taught his disciples along these lines. Look at Matthew 9, 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus taught the disciples what to do. When they see needy people in a large crowd, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to pray that God would send laborers because it's God's intention that his people would move out and step toward needy, broken, helped, harassed people and that they would help them. That God's people would help those lost, broken people. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this very much, but your high school is filled with needy, broken, lost, harassed, helpless people, and God sent you into that school to help them. And you might not like to hear this either, but your youth leaders have read Matthew 9, and they pray this way for you, that you would recognize that you have been sent by God into your high school because you're surrounded by broken, lost, lonely, harassed, helpless people. Now, let's go back to chapter 14. Jesus sees these crowds. He has compassion on them, and he spends all day healing. I, I wish we had these accounts, names, stories. Uh, uh, I wish, I, I wish I, we could hear what, what that conversation was like with the Lord Jesus. I suppose one of the things we're going to be doing for eternity is hearing about these uh, wonderful tales, right? Well, there's a practical problem that arises and it leads us to, secondly, the demand of the disciples. The demand of the disciples. The practical problem is uh, that there's not enough food and the people have got to be hungry. Verse 15, it's interesting. Um, this, think about how these uh, disciples are speaking to Jesus. They're speaking to their master. And here's what they say to him. 
This is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Are, are they brusque? I mean, I read it in a brusque way. But are the disciples being brusque here? They don't address him as Lord. They, they don't have requests. It's just a demand. Jesus, you've kept them too long. It's time to get rid of the people. Send them away. And maybe this, uh, it, you might be able to relate to this. This reminds me a little bit of sometimes the dear introverted saints at our church. Especially those who are married to your extroverted saints. It's a dear introverted woman. She comes to church every Sunday and her extroverted husband cannot leave the building until he talks to everyone. She was ready to go 35 minutes ago and, and she's sitting in the foyer waiting for him to be done talking to me. Heaven help her if there's a visitor that came because he will be here forever. I hope she has crackers in her purse she's never going to eat again while she waits. And Jesus is, is, he's talking, talking and helping people and come on. The disciples are starting to get a little hangry here themselves, I think, right? You wonder, you wonder if, if, if whose hunger they're really concerned about, you know? So, are they frustrated with Jesus? Are they, are they frustrated with him? You ought to think about dinner, man. Come on. Send these people away. There's a warning here. There's a warning here in this passage. I think it's a warning about the temptation uh, the temptation to believe that Jesus is not really paying attention the way he ought to be paying attention. Do you ever have that temptation in your life to think that? That God's not really paying attention to what you need the way you think he should? Jesus is not paying attention to what I really need in my life, to, to, to the circumstances that I'm really in. The book of Psalms, over and over again, it has this question, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And that question has been lingering in the disciples' mind so long that it started to sour and sour them. They're on the back side of this question, how long? And they're angry and they're a little frustrated. Um, uh, uh, there's a warning against having that same feeling in your mind and your heart. Their frustration must grow, it seems to me, when Jesus says, they don't need to go anywhere, you feed them. That's an emphatic, you feed them. <laughs> Why did he say that to them? You, you wonder if he's, he's goading them a little bit. He had taught them how to respond to crowds of needy people. He taught them how to respond to crowds of needy people. They were supposed to pray for workers. They don't want to pray for workers. They want to send the people away. You feed them, he says. And ironically, that's exactly what they're going to do. They just don't realize it. It's a ridiculous suggestion. It's so ridiculous. Here, look, I'll show you what we've got. We've got five loaves of bread, little rolls, and two fish. That's all we've got. There's no mention in the Gospel of Matthew about the little boy who brought his lunch. He's the great hero of every Sunday school lesson on this. No mention of him here. Matthew tends to condense stories in the Gospels, accounts in the Gospels. The little boy shows up elsewhere, not here. This is all we've got. Five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, bring them here to me. Now, let's talk third here about the sufficiency of Jesus. This leads us to the sufficiency of Jesus. 
bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. There's some words that should be carved deeply into your thinking. Gospel mathematics. Here's how gospel math works. The resources you have, which God entrusted to you in the first place, but the resources that you have placed into the hands of Jesus are endlessly useful. The resources that you have placed into the hands of Jesus are endlessly useful. F.D.L. Bruner says something interesting about this passage. He says, disciples should always count to eight. Disciples should always count to eight. They've counted to seven, these disciples. They've got one, two, three, four, five loaves of bread, six, seven fish. They can count to seven. Disciples should always count to eight. They've got one, two, three, four, five loaves of bread, six, seven fish, and one, eight, Savior. And it's the eighth that makes the difference in the world. Remember the opening question that I asked? Uh, do I have an, what it takes? Is there enough within me to face this challenge? The answer probably to that question in many circumstances is probably not. But you have the Lord Jesus. You have the Lord Jesus. Do you have enough wisdom to deal with the situation that you're in right now? Probably not. Do you have enough patience to deal with the situation that you have right now? Probably not. Enough energy? Maybe not. Probably not enough courage either. God seems to do this with his people. He puts them into positions where they are not equal to the task. And then he says, bring what you have here to me. The resources you have placed into the hands of Jesus are endlessly useful. Think about how this passage would change, would change your prayer life. Acknowledging your own inadequacy, asking for help. Jesus, you're sufficient, so I'm coming to you. I, 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 I'm willing to give you everything I have, which is not much and not enough, but I'm going to give it to you. Please help me. Please help me. Jesus is sufficient. You, not so much. Him, absolutely. And then there's this miracle that happens to demonstrate his sufficiency. He, verse 19, directs everybody to sit down. The text literally says recline on the grass. That's, that's the way they'd get ready to eat. They would recline. And then, does this sound familiar, this language? He looked up to heaven, he gave thanks, and he broke the loaves. That should sound a little familiar, I suppose, because Matthew borrows that wording and he uses it in Matthew 26 in the institution of the Lord's Supper. There are some people who see this as the first sort of communion meal. The problem with that is that there's fish but no wine, and there's, so you need the, the, the wine to demonstrate the shed blood. So this is not... This is not the Lord's Supper, but there's a couple points of connection. One, this is a meal just like that was a meal. So you would pray and break the bread and pass it out. That's, that's just normal meal activity. But perhaps the other connection is, again, about the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is a sufficient Savior. And when we pass out the bread and we drink the juice, it is a symbol, it's, it's an announcement again that his body was broken and Jesus' blood was shed for our forgiveness and it's forgiveness that is rich and full and free and sufficient for every sinner in this room. 
for anyone who turns and trusts in the Lord Jesus. Remember, you have to have a sort of dependence on the Lord Jesus in order to become a Christian. You're not a Christian because your parents are a Christian. You're not a Christian because you go to a church. You're not a Christian because you're an American. You, are a, you become a follower of Jesus by this turn of dependence on him, recognizing his sufficiency to pay the penalty for your sins, your sins that makes you worthy of the wrath of God. Jesus bore for you on the cross. He died and rose again. And you you become a Christian by depending, by trusting in what Christ did on the cross, in him and his free gift of, of forgiveness and life. That's how you become a Christian. It's how you enter the faith as a follower of Jesus. And here this passage reminds us it's how you've got to live as a follower of Jesus in this dependence. Jesus takes the bread, he gives it to the disciples, the disciples give it to the people. Jesus breaks the bread, gives it to the disciples, the disciples give it to the people. I wonder, this is a wonderful model for you in teaching your Sunday school class, isn't it? You're giving your students what the Lord Jesus and his kindness has given to you. I took um, Gospels in uh, school from Mark Bailey, and Mark Bailey asked a question of us when we came to this passage that has stuck in my mind. He said, think about this, this large crowd of people, and there's 12 men that are serving, uh, passing out the bread and the fish, and they go, uh, come back to Jesus to get more, and they go out and they give it away, and they come back to Jesus to get more, and they go back and give it away, and come and get more and give it away. And Mark Bailey said, how many times do you think the disciples had to come back to Jesus to go out to the crowd before it dawned on them that he is the source of everything that they would need to serve other people helpfully. How many times did they have to come back before they realized that he is the all-sufficient one who will give them the resources they need to serve others? I have questions about this, this miracle. It, this intrigues me. I want to know this. I want to know how it happened the mechanics of it. So Jesus is breaking the bread. Did he, when did it multiply? Did it multiply in his hand so that there was always more for him to break off? Or did it multiply in the baskets? You know, he'd put down one piece and there'd be like 70 uh, after he'd put it in. Is that how? I'm not sure. I don't understand. There are some people though who read this and want to diminish the miracle. They want to give it a natural explanation to say things like, they, here's one explanation. They say, well, when that little boy brought his lunch and he gave it, it was such an act of, uh, of sacrifice and such a beautiful act that everybody else got out the hidden food that they had and, and shared it around. And that's how everybody was fed. You know, they had a cheese sandwich in their pocket and a can of tuna in their, in, in their backpack and they brought it out and that's how everybody had enough to eat. I'm not sure that these poor Palestinian peasants are walking around with cheese sandwiches in their pockets. And, and uh, th then another explanation, some people say, well, uh, this is just a token meal. Everybody got like communion, right? A little bit of bread and a little bit of juice, and that's how that, how that works. But that won't work with the text. The text says they all ate and were satisfied. The word satisfied is the word that they originally used to describe fattening up a, a cow for the special fe feast dinner, uh, festival dinner. Remember when the prodigal son came home, they slaughtered the fattened calf, you know, you know that old uh, song, Christmas is coming, the goose is getting fat, right? Okay, so you, you want to feed the, the goose, you want to feed the cow. 
and, and, and all these people, they've been stuffed. So the disciples, towards the end of the serving of this meal, they come around, anybody else? Anybody else? Who wants some more bread? I got some more fish here. Who wants it? And they grow, oh no, I can't eat another thing. I'm not going to be able to get up off the ground. They're satisfied. And then there's 12 baskets left over. That can't be a coincidence. One for every one of the disciples. Carry this bread home. Maybe the lesson will stick. Or, or maybe, maybe it's one for every tribe of Israel. Jesus, even though he's been rejected by them, is still the all-sufficient Savior. Verse 21 says, there are 5,000, count them up, 5,000 men besides women and children. And there are some people who read this verse with a huff and they say 5,000 men and just mention the women and children, these apostles, they're so sexist. Jesus isn't sexist, he fed them all. But the apostles, they're the sexist because they only count the men. I have a better explanation for you. I think that this numbering system that's used here in the passage is one of the three connections in the text that we're supposed to make back to the Hebrew scriptures, back to Moses. Remember, they're in the wilderness. He's got a crowd of hungry people. And if you read the Hebrew scriptures and, and consider how they count people, Moses has led the people out of slavery in Egypt, the Israelites, and they're going to march into the promised land, and there's going to be conflict, battles, uh, uh, wars for them to fight in the promised land. And so he counts people like a general counts his soldiers. You count the men. How many fighting men am I going to have for this fight? And that's how the, the, men are, uh, the people are counted here. This is a connection back to Moses. Remember the problems Moses had? They were in the wilderness. He had hungry people and they complained. They complained, oh, feed us, feed us. God brought us out here to starve. And Moses said, oh, no, no, no. God will feed you. And he describes it in the manna that God's going to send every day. And for 40 years, there was manna on the ground. Uh, the longest, one of the longest miracles that God has ever done. Jesus is here. He's in the wilderness. He's with a large crowd that's counted like the Israelites. And he's the source of the food. He's the one who gives them the manna, the bread that they need. Just like David promised in Psalm 132, the son of David is going to give food to the poor. Jesus is here. He's the new and better Moses. This is a passage about the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus. To follow him faithfully means recognizing he puts you in places where you are insufficient. <laughs> Math class some of you, or chemotherapy, or infertility, widowhood. Do you know what it means to rely on the sufficiency of Jesus? Two reminders as we finish here about relying on the sufficiency of Jesus. First, I already mentioned here, it's a matter of prayer. It's a matter of prayer. Take this uh, account and use it as you pray. And then secondly, though, I want you to think about the means that Jesus uses. I'm just going to mention this briefly at the end here because I fear that some of you will hear this merely as an invitation to pray more fervently and to get going. And that's what this passage is. Um, but I, I want you just to consider for just a minute the various means that God uses to provide for us and help us. Sometimes he sends in the middle of, uh, of our lives family members or a church to help you in the situation in which you feel inadequate. 
And sometimes his word reshapes your priorities and values so that you learn to leave undone some of the things that don't need to be done. He uses various means to enable us to, to, to be sufficient in what he's called us to do. I learned recently a, a, a concept called grief debt. Have you heard of a grief debt? So grief is the emotional response that we have to loss. And when you experience grief and you respond to loss, it withdraws from your emotional reserves. Your physical energy, your social energy, your emotional energy, you're withdrawing from your energy bank when you experience grief. And the article asks the question, how long is it going to take us to recover from 12 months of loss? How long is it going to take us to, to accumulate again what has been taken by our grief debt? I have good news for you. You may have a grief debt. It would be certainly normal to have a grief debt at this point in time. But the Lord Jesus has a great surplus. Let's turn to him. Let's hope again in the day of his glad coming. Pray with me, will you? Lord Jesus, we come before you uh, during this month and this week in which we mark that um, terrible anniversary of the year when everything shut down. Lord, we are thankful to you for the mercy that you have shown us in the past year, but we confess to you that at times we have been very afraid and we have been worried and we have been angry and we have been frustrated. We are sad and lonely at times. Uh, we miss seeing uh, each other's faces when we're out in public and in school. So, Lord, we come before you to confess how far short we have fallen. Even as we respond to this grievous circumstances, sometimes we have been doubters and distrustful and skeptical and suspicious. So we come before you and we ask you that you would remind us of your great sufficiency and that you would implant this deep into our hearts, that we would be faithful in bringing to you the resources that we have, that we might be used of you to help those who are harassed and helpless and lost and broken and needy, especially when it's us. And Lord, we do pray this morning too with the Apostle John in anticipation of that great day, we pray that you would return soon for us. We have confidence you will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet you in the air, and we shall be with you forever. Oh, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. We ask these things together as a congregation in the name of Jesus, saying, Amen.